We're back to where we started in Act 1. It's 1572, and the Spaniards have come looking for the missing Jesuits. They find a boy still alive, an altar boy named Alonso de Olmos. He's been living with the Indians for more than a year, so that his hair has grown long, but just on one side, in the style of a warrior. He struggles with his Spanish. I imagine him sitting there on the ship, taking a moment to adjust. The Spaniards, prickly with armor and moral outrage, pelt him with questions. What happened? Why are you living as a savage? Where are the Jesuits? He whispers, they're all dead. He can smell salt on the water, can taste the fish he'd learned to spear from it. What about Don Luis, they want to know. But Alonso just blinks. I'm Brendan Wolf, Managing Editor of Encyclopedia Virginia at Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. On this episode of Not Even Past, we conclude the story of Don Luis. Years earlier, he'd been a Virginia Indian named Pocky Caneo. But that was before he'd been picked up by the Spanish somewhere on the James River. Before he'd sailed to Spain and had an audience with the king, Philip II. Before he'd been to Mexico City. Before he'd fallen ill and been reborn a Christian. Before he'd sailed north with the Dominicans but failed to find the Chesapeake Bay. Before he'd studied with the Jesuits, completing Ignatius's spiritual exercises. Before he'd used his five senses to imagine the horrors of hell the wailings, the groans, and the cries. Now he's in Seville, his hair cut short, and one of the Jesuit fathers comes quietly, likely interrupting his prayers. Brother Luis, he says, a new mission has been organized. You must go. And so Don Luis goes. And so, perhaps, does Paqui Caneo. He meets the missionaries at the tiny Spanish outpost of Havana, They're led by a contentious, scandal-prone priest named Father Juan Baptista de Segura. It's August 1570, and Segura has only been in America for two years, but he's already concluded that the place is a wasteland. Because they are either dead or enslaved, there aren't many Indians left to convert. China. That's where the future lies. Still, Segura wants to make one last run at Virginia. What attracts him is what continues to attract the Spanish governor, the idea that the Chesapeake Bay might lead to some passage west to the Pacific. After all, what better way to get to China? The governor suggests that Segura take a hundred soldiers with him, but the priest refuses. What's worse, Segura has stocked his company with men who are dangerously inexperienced, both in the world and among the Indians. Perhaps he wants to get himself killed, the governor thinks. A Jesuit named Juan de la Carrera agrees. On their way to Virginia, the missionaries stop at Carrera's church at Santa Elena, on present-day Paris Island, South Carolina. Carrera takes a look at Don Luis. He listens to the Indians' boasts of Virginia's grandeur, of a sea passage to the west, and concludes Don Luis is a liar. Of course, his account is written 20 years later, with the benefit of hindsight. He does his best to convince Segura to turn around, and in the end, two of Segura's priests do quit. A boy, however, joins the mission, Alonso de Olmos, the son of Spanish settlers. He's now Father Segura's altar boy. He climbs aboard ship with the older priests, the friars, and Don Luis, and on August 5th, they all set sail for Virginia. 
We arrived and unloaded the cargo yesterday, writes one of the priests in a letter to Spanish authorities. It's dated September 11, 1570. We find Don Luis's land quite different from what was thought, he says, but then absolves the Indian of any blame. There's been a drought, six years of famine and death, leaving a much reduced population. The Indians gather to greet the Jesuits, the priest writes, but have nothing to offer. They're thrilled, however, to see the boy they once knew as Pakikaneo. He's been gone now for nine years. It seems to them that Don Luis has been raised from the dead and come down from heaven. The Indian's leader appears to be a brother of Don Luis. He tells the priests of his three-year-old son, who is quite ill. The boy is about to die, and according to the priests, he begs them to baptize him, which they did. There's famine and death in the land, but Don Luis is risen. He and the Jesuits are welcomed as saviors. They're even called to the sickbed of an important child. Under the circumstances, then, things are going well, or at least better than the skeptical Father Carrera may have predicted. And yet it all unravels rather quickly. The reasons, as we shall see, are complicated, while the consequences, the consequences are deadly. In his letter, the Jesuit notes that a bit of carelessness has changed the dynamic between Spaniards and Indians. The problem, he says, has to do with the trading of goods. Scholars have focused on this. They've said that tensions can be traced to an important difference between Europeans and Indians. They operated on different economic models. The Indians had what's called a gift exchange economy. Instead of trading goods of equal value, Indians gave gifts. In return, they didn't receive goods, but debts, or the unspoken promise of future gifts. Not surprisingly, the Spanish missionaries didn't understand how this worked. They refused to barter with Don Luis's people because they thought that worldly commerce would morally corrupt them. They did need to trade for food, however, so they did it with Indians who were not Don Luis's people. This seems reasonable enough, but it violates one of the important rules of the gift exchange economy. Never trade with rivals while refusing to trade with friends. This was considered gravely insulting. There are hints of all this in the priest's letter. And what about that baby? Did Don Luis's brother really understand that he was sending the priest to baptize his sick three-year-old? Or did he expect them to heal the boy? And if the child didn't survive, did Don Luis's brother think he'd been tricked? The priest's letter ends, May Christ our Lord be with you all. He's never heard from again. Everything we know from this point forward, we know from Alonso de Olmos. He's the altar boy, the one sitting on the ship's deck looking all the Indian and forgetting his Spanish. Rescued and on board the ship, Alonso talks to a priest who then writes his story. Alonso says that Don Luis lodged with the Jesuits only a few nights before rejoining his brothers, who lived more than a day's journey away. He's returned in a way to being Pakikaneo, or perhaps now he's someone new altogether. As it happens, the Indians of Tidewater, Virginia change names often. It's a way of reflecting new identities. When a warrior becomes a man, for instance, he receives a new name, or when he proves himself in battle. Pakikaneo may receive a new name too, but Alonso doesn't say. To him, Pakikaneo will always be Don Luis. And Don Luis, Alonso tells the priest, fell into evil ways and took up with women. 
Just as Indians take multiple names, so they also take multiple wives. Chances are Pakikaneo has simply readopted his Indian ways. This may be a rejection of Spanish culture or merely an acknowledgement of his new situation. Spanish ways were for Spanish contexts, Indian ways for Indian contexts. Whatever the case, Pakikaneo slips off his identity as Don Luis de Velasco and slips away into the woods. The winter does its worst. The Jesuits attempt to trade for food, but with little success. They cannot grow. They cannot hunt. They send messages to Don Luis, but receive no reply. They must have been near starvation, and perhaps they do starve. Or perhaps something else happens, something awful and unexpected. That's the story that Alonso de Olmos tells. Was it true, or was it simply what the Spaniards, deep down, wanted to hear. According to the boy Alonso, come February, Don Luis finally relays word that he'll visit. Here's what the boy tells his rescuers. When Don Luis arrived with his tribe, armed with clubs and lances, he greeted Father Segura, who was in bed, sick and praying. Raising his club and giving his greeting were really one gesture, and so in wishing him well, he killed him. All the rest, Alonso says, referring to the Jesuits, were murdered also. When Pacicaneo first left Virginia, more than a decade earlier, it was aboard the Santa Catalina, the St. Catherine, a ship whose name means total ruin. And when he returned, sailing west into the sunset, he sailed to the end of the world. Or so it was easy for the Spaniards to believe. Perhaps Pacicaneo was peeved about the trading. Perhaps that was an issue on which he couldn't be flexible. Or perhaps he found himself caught between pleasing his own people and pleasing the Jesuits, and his anxiety exploded into violence. Or maybe he sought retribution for his companion's death and his own near death. On the other hand, maybe the Jesuits starved, and maybe the Indians adopted rather than captured Alonso de Olmos. He was young, still able to learn new ways and a new language. This happened often enough across tribes, so why not with Alonso? Still, his Spanish rescuers are desperate to know. Where's Don Luis? Vengeance lights up their eyes. I saw that he was a liar, the Jesuit Juan de la Carrera had written. With the benefit of hindsight, he squeezes Don Luis into the stereotype of a conniving and duplicitous savage one who nevertheless played his assigned role, Judas to Father Segura's Christ. Still, where's Don Luis? And perhaps that's one reason why this story has lasted for so long, fascinated for so long. Where's Don Luis? We don't know. Don Luis, or Paki Caneo, disappeared from the historical record. The Spaniards never found him, and therefore, in a way, felt free to invent him. Who was he? They didn't know, and neither do we. Perhaps that's fitting. After all, what right do we have to take more from Don Luis than he's already given? To learn more about Paki Caneo, Father Segura, and see a copy of his last letter from Virginia, go to encyclopediavirginia.org. <laughs>